This is The Back Pass, our podcast for sports nerds by sports nerds. Hello and welcome to The Back Pass. I'm your host, Gurpreet Rana. In today's episode, we discuss the football transfer window. With only a week left to go, we will delve into our panel's wish list, who they think the club should be getting, and who the various clubs are actually going to get. And in cricket, we are going to discuss the role of the captain in the modern form of Test cricket. With me today, all the way from Sydney, a man who could explain quantum physics and perhaps even the LBW rule to a five-year-old, Shivank Dubey. Hello, hello. I don't know about quantum physics, but LBW, definitely yes. Um, what I can also do is offer name suggestions to Tottenham Hotspurs. If you're looking for stadium names, I suggest three-point lane. It's only Spurs, lads. It's only Spurs. Also with us, a man whose relationship with sports would best be described as it's complicated, Param Rana. Hey, guys. And last, but by no means the least, the man who has so eloquently written this introduction so I don't end up making a fool of myself, Mr. Milani. Pavesh, how are you? I love to serve, Gurpreet. I'm very good. Thank you. All right, lads. We're going to crack right into it. The football transfer window. It's getting lots and lots of mileage on the socials. The way we're going to do this, the Chelsea fan is going to get all the London clubs. And the lifelong United fan gets the clubs from the north. Pavesh, we're going to start with the richest club in the world, Newcastle. Who should they get? And who are they actually going to get? <laughs> who should they get? Well, let's talk about who they've gotten so far. So they've landed Kieran Trippier already. They've got Chris Wooden too. So that's right back and striker sorted, you'd think, at least for the relegation battle. And then... They're looking at getting Jesse Lingard. Because if you're a club with untold amounts of riches, the first place you look is Burnley and the reserves at Manchester United. And that makes perfect sense to me. It's, it's, it's only right. Look, I love the fact that Newcastle, under, their new owners, understand exactly where they are. They haven't come in in a helicopter. They haven't come in like Roman Abramovich. They're not buying Hernan Crespo. They're not bringing in Juan Sebastian Veron. They're bringing in Chris Wood. They're bringing in the big guy that you can lob balls to up front and score a couple of goals. And that'll be good enough for six months. And in six months' time, they'll probably be going for killing Mbappe and Erling Haaland. So who... You know what my theory is? Yeah. I think they've seen the original um, footage from about 10 years ago when, um, what was the guy's name? The tall guy with the ponytail. Um, Oh, Andy Andy Carroll. Carroll, There you go. I think they've just seen that footage of Andy Carroll um, basically having fun in the championship and that's their model for how they want to run Newcastle. Wait, so so is so is Chris Wood the rich man's Andy Carroll? We may soon find out. Whether he's the rich man's Andy Carroll or the poor man's Alan Shearer, I'm sure he'll be right at home in the championship because that's pretty much where Newcastle look like they're hitting. Oh careful now, careful now. Lingardino can turn seasons around. We've seen that before with West Ham. I look all in all seriousness. I think Lingard is probably going to be the best piece of business they're going to do in this entire transfer window. He's he's a guy who's obviously struggling for his place at Manchester United. We know he's got talent. We know he can do really well in the lower league clubs, or rather, not the lower league, the mid table clubs. We know that uh, if you give him if you give him a free roll, his off the ball movement's fantastic. 
you know, his finishing is maybe not the best, but he does bring other players into the game. And I think Chris Wood's really going to benefit from having someone like Jesse Lingard playing behind him. And for Lingard too, this is a this is actually a really good career move. And I think he could spend a couple of really good years in Newcastle until they replace him with a Pirlo regen or something. Shivank, Jesse Lingard, should West Ham be going for him? Well, the thing that surprises me the most is why can't he find a spot in the United team? I mean, surely he's contributed more to West Ham last season than Paul Pogba has at five years for Man United. He makes a very strong case that the guy still can't find a spot in the team. I mean, this is actually unbelievable. It's taken a full five minutes for the first Paul Pogba shot to be fired. Bhavesh is going to get ample opportunity in a few minutes to come right back at you. But but with West Ham. Oh, but I agree. <laughs> oh, goodness go. me. There's no disagreement. But I don't think the issue is Paul, Paul Pogba's not keeping Lingard out of the team. Paul Pogba can't get into the team. It's... It, it's more Bruno Fernandes, it's I think. It's the position yeah. where Bruno's playing. But That's where Lingard should be playing. I do think I do think Shavank is right. It is it is a little bit um and we will come to United in a few minutes, but it is a little bit um it is a little bit mystifying why Jesse can't get into that team. Because he ticks so many off the Ralph Ragnick boxes. He's he's a pressing midfielder, like Pavesh said, he's modern, he can do a bit of everything. And I guess in this top four race, West Ham are right in it. So Shavank is is he the player that West Ham should be going for? Yes and no. Um, and I say yes and no because West Ham are in a position where they're really um, pushing for the top four. But they know that even if they can sustain it for this year, there's no guarantee that some of the best players will stay next season. It's not like they're lacking creativity. Um, I mean, Jared Bowen's in the form of his life. Said Ben Rama on the other flank is basically taking on defenders for fun. The fullbacks are absolutely brilliant um so i think with regards to the january transfer window even if west ham don't do anything i think they're all good what they really need to be doing is focusing for next year when more than likely declan rice will be on the way out now whether he goes to united or he comes to chelsea or goes to somewhere else that's a separate topic but you know that he doesn't have too much time left at west ham and then Mikel Antonio is on the wrong side of 30. Uh, Angelo Ogbonna, their centre-back, cultured left-footed centre-back, is 33. Um, I think these are the positions West Ham actually need to replace. Uh, I think Jesse Lingard, for whatever he did for West Ham last year, is commendable. But me, personally, I'm not convinced he's the right guy for them for the second half of this year. I think what they're doing right now is perfect. I think Moyes has found his groove. It's a pity he couldn't do it at Man United as much as I would have loved him to succeed over there. And I think he was on the right track. He was on the right track. He, he was on the right track uh, up until the moment he walked through the United door. Uh, and at that point, he well, completely he lost the ball. He did say before he joined a long time ago that he wanted to see Everton above United. And he was successful at that. So <laughs> I'll, I'll say it again. He was on the right track. Oh, he was on the right track for Everton fans for sure. We would, have, we would have won a championship under Moyes. Definitely. In the third season following the relegation. <laughs> a- a- absolutely. And uh, I think Marwan Fellaini would have been right at home in the championship. Route 1 football, United heading it long to Marwan Fellaini would have fitted right in. Bavish, Shabank mentioned Declan Rice. He is West Ham's prized asset. We, we saw over the weekend just what a massive influence he was in that midfield. 
it was basically Declan Rice against no matter who United lined up, and he completely ran the show. So I guess this is where we come to the traditional, the first of the traditional big four clubs. The club you and I both love, lifelong United fans. Which is the midfielder United are going to spend all summer chasing, end up overpaying on, and we're going to be back discussing a replacement in three months' time. Well, he just named him about three times, didn't you? I think they're going to chase Declan Rice. I think that's the man who has to be top of the list for United. You see other names like Dennis Zakaria, Madhu Haidara. There's always going to be doubts about bringing in players from another league where perhaps the style of play is a little different, the physicality is different. Nothing compares to the Premier League in terms of the physical effort the players have to put in just to get through the game. And Declan Rice has been doing it week in, week out for West Ham. And as you saw, he, he monstered United in the game over the weekend. So I can't really look past Declan Rice. I think United will, will chase him hard. They'll spend £100 million, £150 million on him. I think that He's actually likely to be a success at United. I don't think the whole in midfield's as big as people think it is because Fred is actually playing really well right now, especially when he's playing in a more advanced role. And McTominay as well. When he's given a chance to go forward, he actually he actually does very, very well in the final third of the pitch. What they need is someone like Declan Rice who can actually play an all-round role and hold up the defense and do a lot of the running in behind them. Uh, he's the man for it. But of course... Uh, in the spirit of the season, who are we actually going to get? It's probably going to be, well, you know, we're going to chase Declan Rice. We're probably going to get a box of week old fried rice or something. And Ed Woodward's going to leave one parting present for us. He's going to pay $100 million at the nearest Chinese takeakaway for a bit of fried rice. An argument could be made that um, a box of, a week old box of uh, fried rice might be more useful in that midfield than, uh, than McFred at the moment. Um, well, it'll give you more running. It'll give you more running than Matic would. <laughs> Bhavesh, look, um, serious note. I, I get that Declan Rice would be the, the summer transfer window, but there's no way in hell we're going to get him in January. Is, is, there, is there a player United could sign in January who could make a contribution towards the top four race? I honestly think that ship has sailed. You know, we're recording this on the 24th of January. We've got one week to sign somebody. If they needed to sign someone, they would have signed him by now. The only options are left now. That is far too optimistic, even for a United fan to say if they wanted to sign someone, they'd sign someone in the first 24 days. Sorry, if they wanted to sign someone good and effective, they would have signed him now. We're about to probably bring Marwan Fellaini back from China or wherever he is right now. That, that was going to be my other suggestion. I, I think he's still available. I, I, think, I think Ralph's probably looking at this long term and thinking, the opposite of what Newcastle's owners are thinking. And he's not really thinking about necessarily where United are going to finish in six months. Top four is obviously a minimum. I think he thinks that the team's good enough to reach top four. He just has to get them playing the way he wants to. But I don't think there's anybody really short of people like Declan Rice who are in that £100 million bracket who are tied into their clubs, not likely to come till summer, who are going to come in and immediately improve this team. There isn't really a Bruno Fernandes out there right now in that position, as far as I can see. That, that, that's fair enough. The perspective that I'm coming from is the Champions League is worth yeah, 50 million pounds, 100 million pounds, right? Anywhere in that region, depending on how deep you go into the tournament. Personally, for me, for the likes of Tottenham, Arsenal even, United, if signing that one player means you have that sustained push into the top four and you get third or fourth, 
I think the money just pays itself off. It Personally, it's a no-brainer, but I think that's why it's not going to happen. I think we're going to spend the next week faffing around and sign no one, um, and possibly miss out on the top four as a result. And look at the human element of it as well. Let's not forget the intangibles. United are a team in flux right now. There's been a new manager who's come in Absolutely. who's imposing a new style of play on the players. Right now, what they actually need is stability. And he needs to work with these players and get them playing in his style without shoehorning somebody else in who's been, you know, playing under a different manager with a different philosophy uh, and work and work with them and add more variables. That That's, look, maybe at the start of January, I would have given you a list of names who I thought should have come in. But at this stage, this is my read on it now, that I think he prefers the stability of working with that group of players and really drilling them into his style of play. And it's not uncommon. Uh, people like Marcelo Bielsa and Mauricio Pochettino, who also come from that, you know, high pressing style of uh, football, a different school, of course, but very similar methodologies. They also prefer smaller squads. They prefer to keep smaller squads because you have a tight end squad. You can actually mold them to play as a unit better than if you have a bloated squad. So I think Ralph's first problem actually is getting rid of the deadwood rather than bringing anybody else in and molding the core. That's his job for the next six months. So perhaps for United, maybe transfers aren't necessarily top of the list. Not not in January. I have a legitimate question for you guys. Um, do you see someone like Aaron Ramsey, who's essentially on the way out from Juventus anyway, but co- him coming in and pulling a Henrik Larsson from, I don't know, 15 years ago? Like a six-month loan deal. Um, he comes in, he gives you that depth in midfield. He's got good legs. He's got energy. He's a progressive passer, left-footed. Do you think he might be a solution to one of your many problems? It's an interesting idea, but having legs in the Serie A is very different to having legs in the Premier League. Well, he does have Premier League experience. Although yes, and he's also had, hasn't he had a bit of an injury history as well? And that's you know, so you, how much are you going to spend on that guy who might break down in three weeks? It'd be the perfect signing, Pavish. We'd sign him on a 250k contract. He will play three games, probably score a hat-trick against Arsenal, and then not not play the rest of the season. Talking about Arsenal, uh, I think this is where the uh, the banter levels are going to ramp up, Shavank. This is your this is your your first chance to fire a proper shot across the across the bowels of one of your London rivals. I wouldn't call them rivals anymore. Oh, straight into oh, it! Straight yeah. into it! Shots have been it, fired. They're like that younger sibling who you really don't want to talk about, but, you know, you have to play nice with them. So a bit like yeah. Paro. Go on. Go, go on, go on, Shabank. We'll, 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 we'll stay with Arsenal. I heard that. I heard that. I heard that. I, that, took, that took me by surprise. So, with Arsenal, I think the biggest problem right now, and... Trust me, as far as I'm concerned, it is a problem. Um, I think that, that, but on a serious note, the bigger problem, biggest problem is Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Mm. Guy's on a massive wage. Mm. He is their captain. He isn't playing. And when he plays, he isn't scoring. What do you do with a guy like that? Um, they definitely need goals. It's been lacking. Um, if you look at their entire season, you know, they had a shaky start after what you and I thought Reprieve was a very successful window with how they bought young players who were really good. Um, and obviously, they're a team in transition, but I I genuinely feel that if they can find a solution to the Obama-Yang problem, 
a guy who can score goals, who is a leader, you know, um, and can also sort of help ease the load on the likes of Saka, Lacazette, um, Emil Smith-Rowe, and Odegaard. I think that's the kind of player they need. Whether they'll actually get one, I don't know, because it comes down to the same thing. There haven't been many links to Arsenal, and this is the 24th of January. There's about seven days left in the window, so... I feel a similar situation to what Bavesh has just described with United, where there is potentially long-term options, but given the time left in this window, and the fact that to get a replacement, they've probably got to ship him out, probably makes it a little bit too hard. I I do completely agree that it, it was evident in the game this morning against Burnley that finishing was a big problem for them. And just with the way they play, the chances they create, if they had someone who was even a little bit better than Lacazette, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they would be firmly in that top four race. I mean, dare I say, um, the actual player they need is someone like an Olivier Giroud. He links up well. He, he attacks the mayor post really well. Ideal role model for all the young players in the team. I think, I think Chelsea got the better deal when they had the three-way swap between um, Dortmund, Chelsea and Arsenal and three players moving around. Yeah, um, I used to have a lot of fun at Giroud's expense back in the day, but after having seen him play for my club for about three and a half seasons, um, I've actually changed my opinion on him. Talking about strikers and the lack of, most clubs retire shirt numbers. Man City retired a position, Pavish. Who <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> the champions elect need? Well... <laughs> They're top of the league by a mile. They don't need anybody. They they need they need a striker like Richard Branson needs another spacecraft. <laughs> like sure, it'd be nice to have, right? It'd be nice to have. You can it's shiny. You can show it off to people, and you can put it in ads, and you know you can make viral videos out of it. But really, what uses it when you're already top of the league and probably going to win the Champions League? Life is pain as a United fan. But looking at their possible transfers there. I reckon they're still going to go back in for Harry Kane in the summer and Erling Haaland as well in the summer. Left field, Vinicius Jr. Would fit right in. Would fit right in. He would fit right into that team. He would fit right in. He's he's a very modern striker. You know, good link up play, good running in behind. He can give you that target option as well, but he can also give you a very creative option. Will Real Madrid let him go? Well, depends on what Kylian Mbappe wants to do. So, Pavesh, you don't think that uh, Pep is going to pursue the board to go after Trent Alexander-Arnold and Reese James in the January transfer window? It's a bit late right now because who would Liverpool replace him with? But Pep does love himself some fullbacks, so I wouldn't put it past him. Oh, um, I, I can't remember if it was this past summer or the summer before, but Pep actually put in a bid for Reese James for $15 million and Chelsea said no. I did not know that. I did yeah. not know that. It's so, t- pip, typical pip, pip. Typical pip. Typical pip. It, 200 million worth of fullbacks not enough for him. He's just got, he just can't have enough. It's all it's all about the fullbacks these days for Pep. Like I said, it's like Richard Branson and a spaceship. I'll just get another one. doesn't matter. Get another yacht. Put my face on it. Who cares? I'm Pep Guardiola. I've got all the money in the world. I, I really can't resist this because I, I said it to Shivank last year. We, we know City want that Champions League. And personally, I feel something that really hurt them in that final. Look at the smile on Trevang's face. Something that really hurt them in that final was the lack of a striker. 
do you think there is a player? Obviously, Harry Kane, um, Haaland, not going to happen in January. But is there someone they could sign who could just provide that different option off the bench? Well, unfortunately, he's gone to Newcastle and his name's Chris Wood. And they've sold one to Barcelona for $55 million. I don't know how Barcelona is going to register him. I think they have now. But yeah, it's like Pep doesn't care about center forwards anymore. Well, Barcelona must have a secret Bitcoin account. That's my only explanation for it. There's no other way that Cashed they could have done right this. Yeah, that's right. Well, they got MTT to sign a new contract, but then extend his current wage out for a couple more years, and that's supposedly paid for Ferran Torres. So a lot of um, financial jiggery-pokery going on. Yep. Financial jiggery-pokery. That can only be Daniel Daniel Levy and Spurs. But before that, though, I just want to ask Shivang Shivang, would you give Lukaku to them? Would you give City Lukaku? Would you want to just get rid of him now? Oof. Before it gets too do destructive. You, do you want the serious answer? The serious answer yeah. is no. And hear me out when I say this. Um, Didier Drogba, for a long time, used to say the most outrageous things. Um, you know, when Jose Mourinho left for the first time, Didier Drogba came out and gave some really interesting interviews. But we all backed him. And in 2012, the guy basically left like a legend. We've been extremely patient with all our number nines. Timo Werner is no exception. Um, we've been extremely patient with Diego Costa and his antics as well. Granted, the last two did score goals for fun as well. But um, I would still persist with Lukaku for another year before considering giving him to Pep. I mean, Chelsea, even though we try and comply with FFP, try and comply. Um no. It wouldn't matter if we sell him for half the price two years on if he hasn't delivered on his value. Oh, who knows? Inter Milan might come back. Uh, our listeners can't see Pavesh's face, but uh, right after Shivank said financial compliance, Pavesh almost um, almost choked on his little drink. We nearly had to cancel the podcast recording and send for extra help. <laughs> we did. We did. Can't do the Heimlich over Zoom. Uh, uh, Shivank, on, 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 on the Lukaku front, I, mm. And 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 let's um we'll, we'll leave um because it's only Spurs we'll we'll defer Spurs to to the end of your section um Chelsea I get the impression the wheels were starting to wobble a little bit the last couple of weeks probably well and truly out of that title race now yep. like everyone well else is it, yeah. is there is there is there a player that your lot could sign in January and it may be a striker uh, who could give you that little bit of a boost particularly for the Champions League? Um, I I would actually go on and say we don't actually need a, need a striker right now. What we actually need is a left wing back. Mm. Mm. Because um, if you go back in history a few months, we played the best two matches of football this entire season. And I'm not talking about individual halves. I'm talking about two full 90 minutes. They were against Leicester away and then Juventus at home. 3-0 against Leicester, 4-0 against Juventus. We absolutely swept the floor with these two teams um and you know these two teams aren't pushovers by any stretch of Mm -hmm. imagination the the football we played during those two games was essentially reliant on reese james and ben chilwell um bombing and being very aggressive going forward unfortunately in the juventus game we lost one of them and then right after west ham we lost reese james and ben chilwell's gone for the entire season now with a grade two um knee injury. And what we're left with at 
Left wing back is essentially Marcus Alonso. Now, Marcus Alonso has been fantastic for us over the years, but some of the things he was never good at, which is tracking back, staying in position, or keeping up with the likes of Raheem Sterling, he can't do that anymore at 32. He might have had a chance at 26, but definitely not 32 or 31 or however old he is. Um, we somehow do manage to find the goals, um, even if it's one goal or two goals, where we... What we built the entire first half of the season on before these two injuries was the massive number of clean sheets we accumulated and what we're struggling to do right now, except of course against Spurs, because Spurs gun Spurs, is to keep those clean sheets. And to me, the problem is 18 games in 59 days hasn't been fun. Um, that basically will drain any squad of its entire energy reserves. And then not having someone as dynamic as Ben Chirubel on the left is the other problem. We've been linked with a few players. Um, Tagliafico from Ajax has been one of them. There's been a few others who we've been linked with. Um, there were there was chatter of Emerson coming back from his loan on Lyon from Lyon, but me personally, I was very much against it because watching him on the pitch is like watching a headless chicken. Um, so I'm kind of glad that Leon um, wanted to keep him. Um, I will never find the rationale behind it, but hey, I support it. We've signed an 18-year-old from Derby County, Dylan Williams, although I think the rumors are that he's going to play in the development squad rather than the first team. And honestly, now I don't see us signing anyone um, in the next seven days, unless you know we pull a miracle like Fernando Torres on the 31st of January. You could sign, if you enjoy watching Headless Chickens, you could sign Fred from us. Sign another midfield reserve. Well, we do have Saul, who can I, play left wing I, I would do that trade in a heartbeat. Yeah, I would. I, I would do that He's, trade in a heartbeat. He we'll has finally found. As well. Yeah, no, we need somebody who can go up and down the pitch. Oof. And, yeah. And not just, not just a bad merchant. Oof. Oh, harsh but fair. Harsh but fair. So the the we, we mentioned City were the champions elect. Realistically, the only club that could catch them. And and let's ramp the pain right up for Pavish. Liverpool. Oh, dagger to my heart. Right. So Liverpool right now. Who are they in for? They apparently won Rafinha from Leeds. That would actually be a fantastic signing for them, I think. Rafinha is, again, an all-action wide midfielder. Great attacking goal threat as well. Would link up really, really well, I think, with um, Trent Alexander-Arnold. They're also after Jared Bowen from West Ham, as well as, apparently, Erling Haaland. In January. Yeah, yeah. And this probably only exists in some Sun Editor's wet dream. But there it is. It's out there. Sorry, Sky Sports News, I should say. It's out there, apparently. Liverpool Liverpool are going for Erling Haaland. Then they're going to go up against the likes of Man City and Newcastle for, I'm going to repeat this, Erling Haaland, the goal bot. So, the, so that's not going to happen, right? So who do they want? They want Rafinha. Rafinha is probably not going to leave. He's apparently signing a new contract with Leeds. <laughs> and Parham has just gone and texted me saying he wants Shara Khan to go to Liverpool. Uh, are you talking about the cricketer, bro? Klopp. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying to add to this con. He who plays a false nine. 
So, but but who look? But who Liverpool? Who, okay, so Liverpool probably aren't getting Rafinha. But who are Liverpool probably going to get? They're probably going to end up with Jared Bowen. And knowing Jurgen Klopp, he's going to turn him into a Ballon d'Or winner by 2025, because that's how frustrating life is right now. Do you think Liverpool missed a trick by eventually letting go of Shakiri? That's an interesting question, actually. Uh, I actually, I, I don't think so, Shavank. I think, and again, painful saying this. I think their recruitment, their ability to identify what that team needs and who is surplus to requirements within their setup has been bang on. Pavish is completely right. They'll probably sign Jared Bowen and turn him into peak Ryan Giggs in two years. I, I think that, 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 that club at the moment pains me to say this under Jurgen Klopp is, is a well-oiled machine. What they really need, though, I think they really need a replacement for Firmino, uh, who's getting on in years now, and his output's probably starting to drop a bit. And they also need someone to slot in as a backup for Virgil van Dijk. We saw how their title defense slipped away the moment he got injured. And I don't know if they really properly got anyone there to replace him, if that happens again. Title defenses slipping away. Managers throwing a tantrum. Probably best to wind up this section with Spurs. Shivank. I mean, lads, it's Tottenham. What more do I need to say? Before I actually get into the thing, um, I read a tweet this morning that Chelsea have broken their own record about for beating Tottenham four times in the season and not conceding a single goal. 20 years on, we still hold that record. It's only Tottenham. Uh, uh- I mean, look, I, I'm going to say this. I, I remember I remember meeting up with Pavesh after the, um, goodness me, I promised myself I wouldn't bring this up in this podcast, but Liverpool beating us 5-0. And I remember Pavesh saying to me, dude, it's over. Oli's got to go. It's over. <laughs> and I remember telling him, there are signs because we beat Tottenham 3-0. That was the very next game. And we, we played Tottenham off the park. Um, as it turned out, it was only because it was Tottenham. Yep, it's Tottenham. Um, in, all, in, in all seriousness, though, I, I look at this table where Tottenham are. Let's look at United. United are in fourth, 38 points. Tottenham are on 36 with two games in hand. Harry Kane, we know, has, there's a lot more to come from him. He's got a point to prove. They are seriously in this top four race. And I think of all the clubs we've covered, they are probably the club most likely to sign someone because of Antonio Conte, because of the way he demands players. Siobhan, is there someone they could get that could actually propel them to that top four? Um, there's been a couple of rumours, actually. I won't go into the names because the names keep on changing every day, but um, looks like Spurs will be busy in the transfer window, um, unlike most of the other clubs we've talked about. Um, Ndombele seems to be on the way out. Tanganga seems to be on the way out. And one of the names that has been cro- uh, cropping up is they're about to sign Adama Traore from Wolverhampton Wanderers. Um, I think that's a good piece of business. But that doesn't necessarily solve their major problems. Um, Tottenham have been a team in transition for a while. Um, they've lost the two of their best centre-backs, and Alderweireld and Wertongen. They haven't actually successfully managed to replace them with any of the players that have come in. Devinson Sanchez was a good signing, but he's suffering from a dip in form. So, again, they can sign Adama Traore, but that doesn't actually solve their problem. And that's a very Spursy thing to do. Uh, the other problem that they have is their midfield 
is struggling ever since Christian Eriksen left. They don't have a natural ball progressor. And I don't know what the deal with Delhi Ali is. He's short of confidence. He doesn't want to play anymore. But whatever the deal is, they're lacking a progressive passer. And I think that's the other place where they would like to cement. And Dombele could have been the guy, but he, does, he he's worked under three managers now, Mourinho, um, and Nuno, and now Conte. And neither of them have been convinced that he is the guy to actually anchor the midfield. So... I, I think they- I just think it's telling as well. Sorry, I, I think it's telling too that when the topic of Adama Traore was put to the Wolves manager Bruno Lager, he said, "We have to protect Adama." <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that was that was probably in relation to the transfer fee, but I think they do need to protect Adama. I think they need to put him on the phone to Kylian Mbappe, and just let it take its course. But I thought that was a hilarious response, though, to the to the subject of Adama Traore going to Spurs. So I think in winding this section up, uh, being so desperately short of trophies, I think Adama, trof- Adama Traore would be the perfect ornament in their trophy cabinet with the amount of oil he puts, him, <laughs> puts on himself. The shine that guy gets is incredible. All right, listeners, we'll move on to cricket. Any hate mail? At Shivank Dubey at Pavish Milani. Those guys will love your feedback after all of the shots that were fired. In this section, we look at the role of the captain in Test cricket. Shivank, we saw Virat Kohli recently step aside from his role with the Indian national team. What is the exact role of the captain in Test cricket? Um, that's a very interesting question, Gurpreet. And unfortunately, the answer isn't as straightforward as most people assume it to be. Um, Bhavesh and I were talking about this last week, and I'll actually steal his quote. Um, in a nutshell, a captain is basically one amongst, uh, sorry, the leader amongst equals. And when I say that, um, sorry, it's a bit of information to nitpick from here, but Essentially, gone are the days when the captain was the only one who was responsible for picking the bowlers, picking the team, um, and guiding how things are supposed to happen. He would have input from his vice captain, maybe one senior player and the wicketkeeper. But I think the game's evolved quite a bit in the last 30 years. And what we see nowadays is that there's an entire video analysis department that actually does the homework on the opposition. Um, there's reg- There's a bowling leader who's also present there's the captain there's the wicketkeeper and then you have a cohort of senior players together and collectively these guys make the decision on what needs to happen ultimately the final say still belongs to the captain but it's not like he's a lone ranger anymore um sort of an analogy and it's not a perfect analogy i do agree but take brs for example the wicketkeeper can have an opinion on whether it's out or not out but the final call still sits with the captain um, previously, you would have someone who was maybe the best player in the team. They were the default picks for the captain. But now times have moved on. And, and it isn't necessarily about being the best player in the playing 11. It's about someone who takes up the responsibility, who is basically a leader, who knows how to pick his team up when they're down, and who's basically vocal enough to cheer the team up. Amongst many other things, the captain's still going to be the role model for basically every youngster coming through because when you talk to a youngster, everyone wanted to be 
like Brendan McCullum back in the day, or everyone wanted, wants to be like Kane Williamson now. So, yeah, captaincy is very complicated nowadays in a nutshell. Yeah, I think if you were to use the analogy, say, of captaincy about 30 or 40 years ago, being like being in charge of a 15-man canoe, you've got oversight of every single person in that canoe. You tell them exactly what to do. The results are immediate. And you are the guy in charge. You are the guy who has to know what the rations are. You've, you've got to have a finger in every pie. Today, being a captain of a cricket team is more like being the captain of a cruise liner. You know, so you've got to delegate your tasks. There's so much information coming through. There's There are so many decisions to be made. And there are so many variables. And you could be the best player and the best tactician. It's easy to get overwhelmed. You should have a support team around you. Watching Ravi Ashwin's uh, video diary during the Aussie tour actually really opened my eyes to how important the coaching staff in the Indian team were and how the tactics and strategies were actually being driven by Ravi Shastri and team rather than by Ajinkya Rahane or even by Virat Kohli. They were all part of the decision-making process. So I think that the support team helped a cricket team develop its strategy for the game. And that's what drives the training. That's what drives the the tactical preparation for the game. On the pitch, for about a period of 15 overs between drinks breaks, it's the captain who is in sole charge and still the sole tactician, but his role or her role has become more executive. You've got the strategy, you've got the game plan, it's your role to execute and, of course, amend your tactics as the situation develops and that's where your instinct comes in. That's where your ability to use your think tank around you on the field comes in. And so those decisions that are made on the fly are made by the captain. And then come the next drinks break, another chance for a team conference, decide the strategy for the next 15 overs. And I think that's kind of how it works nowadays, that there is a huge think tank behind them uh, planning out the day. But reacting to the moments now is the job of the captain. And of course, the, the leadership qualities of raising your team's spirits, of making sure they maintain the intensity of making sure everyone's a, a tight unit. That is still the job of the captain on the field. Pavesh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to delve into something you've you've touched on here. You mentioned the role is more executive. So there's a, there's a support team behind. There's strategy planning that goes in. There are leadership groups. Most sports, particularly cricket, there are other senior players around. Given all of this, is it is it fair the level of criticism that modern test captains still come under? I think the test captain or the captain still carries the can because they're the ones who make the final decision. And again, going back to that that analogy of the ship's captain, if there's a disaster at sea, it's the captain of the ship who bears a responsibility, regardless of whether the loadmaster got it wrong or whether the support staff got it wrong. It's ultimately the guy at the pointy end who bears a responsibility. I think there's still a fair degree of power given to the captain in modern cricket. I don't think it's as devolved as perhaps the football captaincy is. So he still he or she still plays a major role in designing the tactics or even designing the strategy. The power is not completely taken away from them, so the responsibility should sit with them. But I think today it's not as simple as saying the team lost because of the captain. I think they've got to look beyond that and look at the entire system. You know, so if it was the captain, okay, well, what role did the captain have to play? What role did the coaches have to play in 
you know, a, a string of defeats and how can they actually fix that? So the issues are often systemic and the solutions are often also systemic. Now, just as a case in point, when um, New Zealand were toured in India, one of the most common criticisms we had of the black caps was whenever they were bowling spin, they had a long on, even when the batsmen were new and basically giving the Indian batsmen an easy chance to rotate strike. Whoever made the decision, it ultimately falls in the captain for not being aggressive enough in closing that space and allowing India to relieve that pressure off the team. Um, sure, the keeper, the bowler, the captain, the vice captain, and even the dressing room would have had a say in it. But like to Bhavesh's point, the fall guy in every conversation is usually the captain. And this is what I was going to go to Paramon. This exact example where one of the criticisms we've had recently of, of Kane Williamson is that he isn't aggressive enough. The series that we had in India, even though he wasn't the captain, um, so there was um, his participation, particularly in that second test match, wasn't there. But Brendan McCullum is a recent example of someone who was very innovative, very aggressive with his field sets, and he, and he got a lot of credit for that. The field setting, Param, is that something, given all of the analysis we have, I, I am still somewhat skeptical whether that decision through the course of a test match is individually influenced by the captain. One thing we all understand and probably appreciate is that test cricket is difficult. Winning a test match is difficult. We're talking about a match that is played over five days. Five days with 15 sessions. Gurpreet, you and I have watched games, we've talked about this before, that you can easily lose a test match in one session. You've talked about fielding. I'm just going to move away from fielding. Recently, the Ashes Tour, after the first test match had finished, um, England got docked points because of their overrates. Now, this is something new which has come up. Overrates. Um, where does the blame where does the blame go? You know, so there's so much to being a test captain here. You've you've touched base on fielding. Yeah, I I am a big uh, I'm a big fan of Ken Williams' captaincy, but I still feel he's not as aggressive as Brendan was. Um, test cricket that's a uh, captain of a test team is huge. It goes from the toss, um, your batting order, um, your bowling, um, the way that um. Kane Williamson has to utilize Carl Jameson, Neil Wagner. Um, it, it's it's a it's it's a different it's it's a different kettle of fish. Um, test cricket. So your question about feeling it's massive, massive. I am a fan of Kane Williamson, but I still feel his aggression lacks. And like we've seen with Joe Root against Australia, if you give the Aussies an inch, they'll take a mile. And same way. Um, being a test cricket captain, not easy, but you can definitely lose a test match in one session. And that's where I think, you know, you you look at your test captain and you look for the captain to ensure, number one, the match is played according to the rules. And secondly, spirit of the game. And thirdly, to boost the morale. And personally as well, whenever I'm down, you know, I look at my captain for motivation. So Kane, for example, not aggressive enough, but yeah, fielding and all other aspects like, huge for um, test captain so cricket's moving away from being uh, an individualistic sport within the team sport so there is a bigger team coming in and the captain 
role is changing as a part of that. But make no mistake, the captain's personality and the captain's um, aggression or lack thereof still makes a difference. New Zealand's a great example because Kane Williamson has been accused of not being aggressive enough ever since he took over the captaincy from Brendan McCollum. Well, he was the only variable in that team. The coaching staff actually remained the same. Mike Hessen still remained the head coach for many years, and he was the captain under him, but the style of play noticeably changed. So we can see that the captain does play a role. I think, though, it, it depends on the coach too, and do they see the need to stamp their authority and their imprint on the team or not? Maybe one day we'll see a coach like that, uh, a Conte or a Ferguson sort of character come into cricket. We're not quite there yet. Uh, but synergy is important between the captain and the coach. We saw the friction between Kumble and Kohli. And of course, Kumble walked away in the end. Uh, and Shastri and Kohli actually had tremendous synergy. And that led to India's most successful period in test match cricket ever. So I think more important than the personality and so on uh, is the synergy. And I do think the captain still places his mark or her mark on the on the team but it's just supported now by a lot more data and by a lot more tactical support so you have someone like Kohli for instance who not necessarily the most tactically astute captain I think Dhoni had a better reading of the game than Kohli did but Kohli's been more successful because he's leaned on the experience and the knowledge of players and coaches who might have a little bit more um, tactical knowledge than him but brought his aggression and his persona to the team and actually imbibe them with that confidence to play their natural game and that has taken them to the next level so i think the captain's still supremely important the role is changing but the role is not changing for the worse it's evolving as the technology around them and the information around them continues to expand and explode they just need more people to pass that data and turn it into information for them which they can then use to uh, execute just following on from that babesh um probably a sub question here we all will agree that a captain is important in a test match. Is cricket one sport where we can say that your best player should not necessarily be your captain? I'm just going to use an example of Kane Williamson here. I could be wrong here. And the reason why I personally feel Kane Williamson throws a blanket over his captaincy decisions and the wrongdoings is because he is our best player and he bats himself out of trouble. So just falling on from this discussion about test captaincy and cricket, in test cricket, should your captain be your best player? You know what? It actually depends. If that, if, There's many different styles of leadership. All right, so you have those that are, you know, bang your chest, follow me, guys. I'm your general. I'll take you into war. And there's those that quietly lead by example. They set the standard for everybody else. Everyone else sees what the captain's doing and they're inspired to emulate them. I think Kane's probably more of the latter. Take nothing away from his from his ability as a tactician. I think you can't argue with the record that New Zealand have had in the last couple of years with Kane at the helm. Uh, I think he's brought balance to the team and you know he's taken them from an all-out attacking side to one that tends to know when to pick its moments. So you've got to give him credit there. But no, I agree. The best player doesn't always make the best captain. India saw that with Sachin Tendulkar. Sachin. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think there's a lot of lot of industries have started separating your technical and your non-technical competencies. And I think your captain must be one who has the technical ability to be an automatic pick in the team, but not necessarily the best player, but has non-technical competencies that allow him to lead 
10 other superstars while maintaining his or her level of performance as well. It's not an easy task, but I think you need to mm. focus more on the non-technical rather than the technical competencies. You mentioned Sachin, but just to the, adding to the same point, that's where the whole Sachin and Saurav thing works out so well. Saurav was not the best player on the team. That was Sachin. Yet Saurav was much more capable of leading 11 people onto a field and setting the standard and whatever, and actually bringing about the second transition in Indian cricket after a couple they've had the first. And, so. and very much, I think, in terms of personalities, Sachin was very much, he struck me as the, the guy who would just go about being as brilliant as he could be. And it was almost better for him to be not the guy who was sort of fronting the media. The the, the complexities of being the Indian test captain, it was it was almost better for him to to not be to not be that guy. I I do take the point that the role has its nuances. Guys, this has been a great discussion. I've certainly found it very informative. In in winding this up, um, we'll, we'll come to you, Shavank, in, in, in closing this out. Do you see the role changing going forward? So the, the, the direction that test cricket is going and where it's becoming increasingly important, do, do you see the role changing in, in five or ten years from now? I think it'll be different to what it is today, just like how it was different maybe ten years ago. And I think it only becomes easier for the captain if you have more leaders in your cohort. Um, you have more people to rely on, more opinions that actually matter, and more opinions that might actually bring you the result you were after. In saying that, your captain will still be one of the most, well, arguably the most important person on the pitch. May not always be the match winner, but he or she will be responsible for the decisions that actually lead to an outcome of the game. So in that sense, the role won't change, but there'll be minor additions or subtractions that come um, with the role. And I and, think that's what's going to happen. And there is one key competency that all captains must have. And it's not me, but Imran Khan who said it. But all the great captains must understand bowling. If you don't 100%. understand bowling, 100 you can't agree. win test matches. 100% agree. Uh, and this is, this is where the, the more things change, the more they stay the same. In, in test cricket, you've got to take 20 wickets to win. That's basically it, it. Fundamentally, if you can't do that, if your side can't do that, in most conditions, you're not going to win test matches. Yeah. Gentlemen, we'll we'll leave it there. We're, we're coming up to 17 minutes on this topic, almost an hour overall. Thank you so much. I'm sure both football and cricket will be delved into further in upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you again. 